I'm Felix Bunnell, and this is episode 13 of the Housebound Historian. We're reading Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan and published by Viking back in 1951. We're midway through the section on the Great Seattle Fire, so we'll wrap that up and we'll begin the section about vaudeville entertainment in the early days of Seattle history. The morning sun slanted down on a gutted city. Women slept, exhausted, on the street corners beside their household goods. Many had set up tents. Others bedded down in lean-tos of boards ripped from partially burned buildings, and hundreds crawled into the fern thickets. There were refugees from the fire encamped on lawns, in the streets, along the shore of Lake Washington, up on the hill in Queen Anne Town. A mother nursed her child in the shelter of a tent made from two lace shawls. The men and women from the skid road hiked south to the racetrack, where Boeing Field now stands, and made camp on the infield. Sneak thieves roamed the ruins in search of loot. The militia marched the dead streets. Some toughs on the waterfront found a 50-gallon barrel of whiskey and enjoyed a riotous wake for the city. A saloon had rolled a hundred barrels of whiskey into the bay, hoping to get them back later. They recovered two. T.W. McConnell, whose grocery on Cherry Street had been almost miraculously spared, stayed up all night serving coffee and crackers to the hungry. Boats with provisions came from Tacoma and Olympia and Stillicum and Victoria. Captain Brown of the Clara Brown organized a sightseeing cruise to the ruins, then gave the fares to Seattle charities. The first newspapers hit the streets in the early morning after the fire, tiny editions run off in job printing plants. They carried headlines that read, A Sea of Fire, Seattle in Ashes, Tomb-like Ruins Neath a Great Red Cloud. The Daily Press lamented, quote, Oh, light-hearted industrious Seattle, pushing rapidly to industrial and commercial greatness, with hearts full of cheer and hands so willing to work, to be reduced to ashes in a single afternoon, and to have the sun of prosperity darkened by a cloud of mocking smoke. Unquote. Many rumors of death were reported. One paper said flatly that seven people had died and guessed the total might reach into the hundreds. Another reported two thieves shot. Several papers said a volunteer fireman had fallen two stories into the center of the flaming Boyd building. But no paper had a confirmed story of anyone's being killed either that first morning or later. A skull a hand and a bit of charred cue were found in the ruins of a Chinese establishment, but it was later decided that these came from the cadaver of an Oriental who had been kept in alcohol, pending shipment back to the land of his ancestors. The papers carried the mayor's proclamation of martial law, the warning that soldiers would shoot on sight anyone seen pilfering, a request that firearms be brought to the armory for use by the home guard, and the announcement that saloons would remain closed during the emergency. The phrases repeated most often were, a pull all together, and to rise like a phoenix. The town did pull together, too, though a few landlords boosted their rents. Quote, $50 a room is too much, unquote, one paper editorialized. And some Teamsters, perhaps regretting the money they had turned down during the excitement, doubled their charges, a practice all the newspapers deplored. But for the most part, Seattle was proud of its own reaction to disaster, when someone at a public meeting suggested that the $576 Seattle citizens had raised before the fire to send to those made homeless by the Johnstown flood be used locally, the suggestion was shouted down. The money had been given for Johnstown, and it would go to Johnstown. In Saturday's papers were the first announcements of new locations for businesses. Merchants operated from tents. 
when John Court, a 28-year-old Irishman from New York City who had come to Seattle in 1887, reopened his standard theater under canvas. The routine that brought down the house was one in which the straight man asked, quote, how's business? And the comic replied, quote, intense. There's a footnote here. Half a century later, a trio of veterans known as the Three GIs used the same gag in advertising their war surplus stores, which were also intense. It was still good for laughs. And business was intense. 5,000 men had lost their jobs as a direct result of the fire, but there was work for everyone rebuilding the town. A brick town. No more fires. Some of the newspapers suggested that the area south of Yesler, the Skid Road, should again be the business heart of the new Seattle. It had the advantage of being fairly flat. Quote, never again need this section be used for despicable purposes, unquote, declared the post-intelligencer. But one by one, owners announced plans to rebuild their establishments on the sites they had previously occupied, and brothel keepers and gamblers felt the same way. When the first of the new brick stores opened north of Yesler Way, four months after the fire, several brothels had been back in business for weeks in wooden shacks on the skid road. Some girls worked in tents, but even south of Yesler, most of the new buildings were of brick. It takes many men to make a masonry town. Seattle gained more than it lost by the fire. When the fire started, Seattle's population was estimated at 31,000. When census takers counted the population in 1890, less than a year after the fire, they found that Seattle had 37,000 inhabitants. And this is part three. It's called John Considine and the Box Houses, 1893 to 1910. On the evening of the last Thursday in December 1897, a large man wearing a brown derby, a gray rain cape and white gloves, and leading a brindle bulldog on a silver chain, strolled through the rain down 2nd Avenue South, gravely declining the invitations of streetwalkers and, on occasion, raising his cane in salute to a friend. He paused for a moment at the corner of 2nd Avenue in Washington to watch the men going down the steps into the People's Theater. Even on a miserable midwinter night, the place was drawing well. Young sports out on the town, loggers in for the holidays, businessmen, and, most of all, lonesome Easterners waiting for ships bound for Alaska. The big man watched thoughtfully, then went to the head of the steps. He frowned at a black and gold sign that read, quote, People's Theater, Moses Goldsmith Proprietor, unquote. Nailed to the wall was a blackboard on which had been written in crayon, quote, See Lady Osmina change clothes in total darkness in a lion cage, unquote. He went down the steps, paid 50 cents for a seat near the stage, ordered a glass of, quote, water, plain unadorned water, unquote, from an amazed waitress, and turned his attention to the crowd. The place was full. The bar, which stretched along one wall, was crowded. Three bartenders were kept busy. Nearly every table was occupied. Women with painted cheeks and skirts nearly up to their knees roamed the room, smiling at patrons. From time to time, the girls went to the stage and sang a loud song or danced an awkward dance. From the curtained box seats in the low balcony came laughter and shouts and giggles and, most important, a steady ringing of bells as the box hustlers summoned waiters with drinks. The place was a gold mine, John Considine decided, a real gold mine. He'd have to get it back. It had taken a long time for anyone to make much money on culture, even popular culture, in Seattle. In the early days, the phrenologists and the minstrels, the genuine Atlantic seaboard celebrities and the temperance lecturers, the circuses, including the startlingest wonder of the 19th century, and the Swiss bell ringers infrequently came and swiftly went, 
usually leaving the editor of Seattle's Weekly the task of apologizing for indifferent attendance. The excuses range from unseasonable weather to bad roads, and sometimes the lack of quality or sobriety in the performers. The town was 12 years old when Edith Mitchell, whom the Washington Gazette described as, quote, an actress of noted ability and favorable celebrity, unquote, found herself stranded on the Sound while waiting passage to the Sandwich Islands and staged the first professional performance in Seattle. The audience that assembled in the little hall above Charles Plummer's store to hear, quote, personations of characters from Shakespeare and other great poets, unquote, was, the Gazette averred, small but appreciative. Not so the group that assembled later that same year, 1864, to hear a series of talks on physiology, phrenology, and medicines in Yesler's cookhouse. The Gazette explained that, quote, those whose minds are too much occupied with old prejudices and established error are generally uneasy and disturbed by his teachings, but such has been the way of old fogies in all ages, unquote. As a matter of fact, phrenologists seem to have been among the most frequent of the lecturers to appear during Seattle's salad years. They were invariably popular with the press, perhaps because they advertised. The following ad and editor's notice appeared in the Territorial Dispatch for July 24, 1871. Dr. C. Pinkham, Lecture on Phrenology, Physiology, Physiognomy, Anthropology, Love, Courtship, Matrimony, the transfusion of desired qualities from parents to children, laws of health, diet, bathing, exercise, intellectual, moral, social improvements, ethical science, moral philosophy, universal reforms, etc., illustrated with drawings, painting and lithographs, and closing with the examination of two heads. Admission for gentlemen, 25 cents. For the course, 50 cents. Admission for ladies, 10 cents. For the course, 50 cents. Editor's note, there must be a mine of occult research contained in each lecture which to gents ought to be worth 50 cents and to the ladies cheap for a short bit, 10 cents. Not all performances received automatic acclaim. When the Great Eastern and Royal European Circus suspended the free list and made the press pay its way into the tent in 1869, the weekly intelligencer's editor and critic reported, quote, the concluding piece was the sickliest attempt at amusement we have ever seen brought before an intelligence audience. But we understand it was eclipsed on Friday evening when the last performance was given, unquote. Another time, the intelligencer found fault with a lecturer. Quote, Dr. Dickerson, who it will be remembered lectured at Yesler's Hall one evening a few weeks ago, and on attempting a repetition the next evening, failed to be so inspired, has made two attempts to lecture in Olympia and weakened on each occasion. The spirits under whose inspiration he holds forth would not vouchsafe their aid, and all attempts to rally them failed. Perhaps they were overproof, unquote. In 1875, commenting on a minstrel show, the intelligencer noted sourly that it, quote, was not very well attended. The fact is that some talent is a prerequisite for a good house here, unless it is a free entertainment, unquote. Even when the critics approved the quality of a performance, their praise sometimes rang dully. Of a circus, the Daily Pacific Tribune remarked, quote, The performances were all good, especially those of two or three of the horses, unquote. And the intelligencer, writing about the Seattle Brass Band, said with a perceptible sigh that the musicians had, quote, erected a comfortable bandhouse adjoining Wyckoff's livery stable. 
We learned it is the intention of the band to hire a competent teacher shortly, unquote. Culture probably contributed more, in a financial way, to solid Henry Yesler than it did to the men who mounted the rostrum and trod the boards. In 1865, Yesler, whose cookhouse had been the first place for social gatherings, approached the Fourth of July Committee of the Masonic Lodge and suggested that they subsidize him in building a hall on his property, suitable for the annual Patriotic Orations and Independence Day Ball. The Masons gave him $200, the amount they had spent the year before on a temporary structure, and with it, Yesler purchased $150 worth of planed lumber from the Freeport Mill, his own mill having no planer, and $43.75 worth of shingles. At the corner of his orchard, which touched First Avenue and Cherry Street, he built a one-story, 30-by-100-foot hall, ample for the monologists and bell-ringers and ventriloquists and minstrels who came to town in the 60s. For more than a decade, it remained the center of Seattle's cultural activity. At the height of its popularity, the hall brought Yesler, he told a reporter, the sum of $60 a month in rentals. The first professional play to creak the boards was Uncle Tom's Cabin, which came to town in 1871 and reappeared frequently thereafter, once as an operetta, once with an all-colored cast, and again with a double cast including two little Evas who went to heaven simultaneously and two sets of bloodhounds. The most elaborate repertoire offered by any visiting company in the early days was that of the Fanny Morgan Phelps Dramatic Company, which in 1875 introduced to Seattle six plays, Rip Van Winkle, The Lady of Lions, Rosedale, The Ticket of Leave Man, The Taming of the Shrew, and The Gilded Age, besides giving devotees two more chances to suffer with Uncle Tom. The reception of these visitors, though not financially overwhelming, was warm enough to inspire the organization of a Northwest troupe, the John Jack Theatrical Company, whose performances may not have been dramatically adequate, but which nonetheless had elements of interest. When Jack's players made their Seattle bow in East Lynn, they suffered a minor disaster, dully recorded by the Puget Sound Dispatch. Quote, In the third act, Little Willie refused to pass in his checks in the conventional stage manner, being frightened and unaccustomed to the business, the child couldn't see the utility of shuffling off the coil thusly, notwithstanding the desperate efforts of his heartbroken mother, Madame Vane, to make him lay down and die. Being unable to succeed, Mr. Jack was reluctantly obliged to ring down the curtain, unquote. The company struggled on. Jack took his troopers on the road. They left Walla Walla with the blessing of the local editor, who said, quote, We hope they will have better houses than they had here, unquote. The company lost money in Lewiston and came to more grief in Victoria, where two of the performers, who immorality, according to the press, quote, was almost sufficient to send them to the penitentiary, unquote, got drunk and refused to play their parts. In time, the troupe, bolstered by new and more sober thespians, returned to Seattle with a play tailored to their peculiar talents, Captain Jack or A Life on the Border. Of this effort, the dispatch declared, quote, it is of the dime novel melodrama description and consisted of four abductions, one attempted poisoning, two bowie knife combats, one chloroforming, and 24 homicides, and from the beginning to the end there was a running fire of revolvers till persons on the outside supposed Chinese New Year's had broken loose again. Verily it must be seen to be appreciated, unquote. Jack went broke, but the town was growing. During the 80s there was a large enough potential audience to draw bigger names, Opera companies came, and violinists, and sopranos, and a man who had, quote, 
trained a cat to perform the marvelous feat of picking up a soda water bottle and carrying it off the stage, unquote. Also heavyweight champions on whom the legislature looked with disfavor. Boxing was barred by law. Only members of private clubs might legally spar among themselves, a provision that led fighters from distant points to join private clubs immediately upon their arrival in Seattle. A more ingenious evasion of the law was the creation of a play in which a celebrated pugilist acted the part of the hero and in the final act clashed with a local heavy. John L. Sullivan, Jim Corbett, Bob Fitzsimmons, and Jim Jeffries, the championship dynasty of the 90s, all appeared in Seattle in plays suited to their abilities. C. Fitz commanded an ad in the Argus when Ruby Bob Fitzsimmons came to town in The Honest Blacksmith. Quote, Spar three rounds, make a horseshoe, punch the bag, shoe a horse, sing a funny song, unquote. None of the heavy-handed actors, not even Gentleman Jim Corbett, threatened to replace professional thespians in parts not calling for a display of the old one-two, but it was seldom that anyone had the temerity to object to their performances. Eugene Elliott, an authority on early-day entertainment in Seattle, tells a story he fears is apocryphal about the great John L.'s acting. And there's a footnote. The story is from Eugene Elliott's lively monograph, A History of Variety Vaudeville in Seattle, published by University of Washington Press in 1944, and it's quoted with the permission of the author and publisher. At a critical moment in the second act, the Boston Strong Boys strode on stage and announced, I'll save you, mutta. From the gallery came a shout, Save her? You can't even pronounce her. The champion stepped to the footlights. Who said that? No answer. He pulled his coat back onto his broad shoulders, returned to the wings, and made a second entrance. I'll save you, mutta, he bellowed. He paused and looked into the audience. Silence. With the smile of a champion, he clasped his hands over his head, shook hands with the crowd, and amid a burst of applause, returned to the chore at hand. And we'll stop right there. That's the end of episode 13 of The Housebound Historian. We're reading Skid Road by Murray Morgan, published in 1951 by Viking. Join me for the next episode. I'm Felix Bunnell.